I'm Carolyn Barry, and welcome to A Grey Matter, the podcast of the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. Today we are joined by QBI Director Professor Pankaj Saar and special guest Professor Hugh Possingham, Queensland's Chief Scientist. He is a conservation scientist and mathematician who is a foreign associate of the US National Academy of Sciences and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science. He's been a Rhodes Scholar and won two Eureka Prizes, which are like the Oscars for science. And we're fortunate to have him here as a guest for the annual Merson Lecture. We're talking to him about the lessons we can learn from conservation science. Hugh and Punkage, welcome. Hi. Good to be here. Hugh, why is it important for scientists to communicate their research to the public and to government? I suppose, firstly, if a scientist performs an experiment in a lab and never tells anybody, then did they really do anything? So obviously scientists know that. So their first port of call for communicating is a published paper. Yet I think now the number of published papers a year is something around 2 million. It's incredible. Um, I know, it's a little bit alarming. It's impossible to read, even in your own narrow field, as all the things that are being published. But of course, those published papers to the general public and the politicians and the bureaucrats are inscrutably impossible to understand. Even the abstracts are a little bit dense. So um, and if you want to make a difference, have an impact on the ground, have an impact in management and policy, change the way people view a particular topic, you have to disseminate that in multiple forms each articles in the conversation, newspaper articles, radio interviews, newsletters, uh, tweets, and all those things. Or, and even better still, things like infographics, diagrammatic versions of your publication, which I think often to many people are very appealing. So making it a bit more accessible as well. Definitely. I mean, there's no point doing all that work if nobody's going to pay any attention. So uh, in our centre, like I think your centre here, it's always been uh, a big focus on getting the information out there, getting it out in different formats. And obviously many people respond to visual imagery. My own field, which is a lot to do with modelling, so the papers often have equations in them. I'm fully well aware, I think there's a rule that every time you put an equation on a page, your readership sort of halves. Mm -hmm. So if you have three on a page, you're getting pretty few and far between. Bottom line is maths is a language. I can talk to mathematicians in equations and 0.1% of the planet understands that. Uh, You need to turn it into English, but even technical English is difficult and then ideally you turn things into pictures. And all equations are really just words and all pictures are really just words as well. So we need to move between these three versions of communication, I think, as much as possible. And is it partly also a responsibility that scientists have because they're getting their funding from the government, from the public as well, to be actually telling the public what they're doing? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, a lot of uh, research, particularly the basics research, is public funded. Of course, that public funding turns into research, which then develops the advanced technologies that we enjoy here today. So although the money goes in, the payback is, we know, at least five to tenfold. It just comes back 10 or 20 years later. So there's an enormous payback. But in the short term, you do have to justify what you're doing. And for many people in the general public, of course, you know, you say to them, you're doing research. I think about 90% of them think that's what they did in second year high school. So many people, to be blunt, don't know what fundamental research is. Uh, They think it's just the assembly of known information. In fact, it's quite interesting. So often I talk to people and say well, I've worked in a university for much of my career. 
they genuinely think that most of the time we're just teaching or assimilating research that's come from overseas and we aren't actually at the forefront of anything, which, of course, causes me deep distress. And, and I know that the Brain Institute and, of course, UQ's a, a world-class university in the top 10, 20, 50 in most disciplines. We are punching way above our weight in terms of fundamental discoveries. But it's hard to explain that to the general public. They have us often as glorified school teachers. Mm. And also, Pankaj, I think in the neuroscience field, people have this vision of white men in lab coats. You know, we're breaking down those barriers too, aren't we? Very much so. I mean, we, we do things in lab coats, but of course, we're a lot of time dealing with people as well and, you know, putting them into machines. And those people are generally not wearing white coats. And they're asking questions, you know, and que- literally asking questions of people to try to understand what's going on, how they're thinking, how they behave and what kinds of things that they do. So it is important to break the barriers down a bit and think about exactly how the science is done. And even just the institute here itself as well, we have so many different people from all walks of life. There's something like 50 different countries represented here as well. So it's a very collaborative process, isn't it, with research? Yes, very much so. It's really the essence. And certainly in studying the brain now, it's pretty clear that we need collaboration between mathematicians, engineers and biologists. And really that has fundamentally changed the way we study the brain. So, Hugh, in your extensive career, you've worked a lot with all levels of government and non-for-profit organisations. What are the challenges of communicating your conservation research to policymakers? Large, extensive. Uh, I'll give one example. One of the things we're very interested in is how to allocate funds to saving threatened species. Australia has about 2,000 threatened species. These are things that are, are heading towards extinction this century. And of course, extinction rates are currently 1,000 times the normal rate. So if we keep going at this rate, in two or 300 years, we're going to wipe out half the species on the entire planet. So it's a slow slow disaster. It's not like climate change, which is slightly faster, but it's very, very slow for people to understand. So really, we struggle, and Australia struggles to secure all its threatened species. So we show how to use economic return on investment optimisation thinking to actually deliver the resources we have to generate the most species saved for the funding we have. And that's a simple uh, return on investment formula, which is benefit, times chance of success divided by cost, which is sort of how we shop, really. Uh, What are we going to get per unit dollar? But in fact, agencies, not-for-profits, state governments, federal governments, have invented their own ways of ranking threatened species and allocating funds to them that, in fact, have no logic whatsoever. They take some attributes of those species, they give them seven or eight attributes, give them a score out of 10 and add them all up. And it's a bit like, saying what's three kilograms plus two metres. It doesn't exist. So when I say that to them, I can be sitting for hours with public servants and people from the not-for-profit sector trying to explain what I think is plain logic, which is cost-effective, return on investment, logical thinking. And they'll continue to say to me, but well, this other method of making 10 scores for every species, turning them to scores out of 10 and adding them up, that's mathematics too. Why isn't that right? And I have to say, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated. It is interesting. And sometimes when you're trying to explain these mathematical concepts to people, you realise that, of course, many people, they give up on basic maths at an early part of their life. Many people, I say to them, you know, I'm a mathematician. They say well, you know, maths was too hard. And I said, was it really too hard? And then they always tell a story. 
They tell a story about I was nine and I was top of the maths class or I found it really easy and then suddenly they introduced matrices or probability or calculus and I didn't get it. Well, the fact is nobody gets it because they're incredibly difficult concepts, far more difficult concepts than, say, a lot of the concepts in biology. And it takes a long time and it can take months of hard thinking to work out what calculus really means. So they give up. And they give up and then they abandon maths and they almost then abandon anything quantitative and numerical because it causes them trauma. I'd love to know what the brain's doing there, which causes people trauma in their learning processes. So therefore, these quantitative discussions that I try and inject into all government decision making can be really quite fraught by the psychological trauma that people have had happen to them around just maths in their youth. And is that maybe what's going on with some of the bigger climate talks? So we have Glasgow going on at the moment, really big international climate change talks, where the science tends to be so ignored with climate change. Is that maybe what's going on, that people are having a more emotional argument because they're too traumatised by the science? And the science is very, very complicated. Obviously, the atmospheric physics and chemistry is... I don't understand all of that. Uh, there's models in there as well, and, and that's another thing I use a lot. Models, what are they? They are uh, predictions of the future. And, of course, mathematicians create quantitative models, algebraic, differential equation models. That's what's driving the climate models that are making the predictions about temperature rise and the impact of methane and CO2 once temperature rise. So some people are very sceptical of models at all, because technically all models are wrong. The only exact perfect model of the world's atmosphere would be to create another world, and that's sort of somewhat outside the budget of the Australian Research Council, I think. So we can't do that, so we create abstractions, and there are minor errors in those models, so they're not perfect, but they're a whole heap better than putting your finger in the air and just thinking, I think that CO2 may or may not have an effect on the global climate. So... Models do make predictions, we test them, we find that they're actually working very well and then we start to trust them. Um, but it still is then very complicated because what's going on is this enormous big black box that's spitting out numbers and making predictions and I'll have people say to me, well, how can it be true, for example, CO2 is such a small amount of the atmosphere, it's only 400 parts per million, that's hundred. That's almost nothing, isn't it, compared to all the other? How could that be having such big effects? So there's all these counter-arguments which sort of sound intuitively right, but you just sort of have to trust the physicists and chemists and you have to trust that the prediction they've made have already come true. We're already 1.1 degrees warmer than we were in the 1850s. So they predicted it, they got it right, we're already there and we're heading rapidly towards 2 degrees. It comes to an interesting point about trust in science, doesn't it? Because we've had so much distrust of science when we're talking about climate change because it's it's an inconvenient truth, as Al Gore put out there quite a while ago now. But yet we have so much trust in neuroscientists or um, our COVID researchers. So it's been a really interesting shift, hasn't it, to this pandemic that we've had where we're coming back to trust in science. But is it only particular areas that we trust scientists in? 
Yeah, it's tricky to know. I mean, all the COVID policies and discussions, the economic models, the closures, the opening of the borders are all based on models. They're differential equation models very much at the foundations, similar to climate models, which are differential equation models. Those climate models are vastly more complicated. So with COVID, you know, why do we trust the models? Why do we trust the data? Well, I'm glad in a way. I'm glad that people in general feel that the medical practitioners and medical science is broad trusted a lot. Before the 1970s and 80s and this decade, many people would not have known what an earth scientist was or what a climate scientist was. But doctors have been around for hundreds of years. We've come to trust them. And so it's taken generations to build a trust of that particular kind of science. And it's also a science that you can see working at a very short time frame. One can take antibiotics and one is relatively quickly cured of something that would one would struggle to be cured of otherwise. So it is in our face. It's very personal. We can feel it, but you can't feel and see the globe. And everything's happening very slowly, isn't it? So sea level rise. I've had neighbours come to me and say, four millimetres a year. Well, I've been going down to the beach every year for 30 years. I can't see it. But of course, four millimetres a year, well, it has been about two millimetres a year in those 30 years to that 60 millimetres. How would you see that in a tidal range of two metres? It would be hard to pick up. So the changes are slow, even one degrees, you know, given the variability from summer to winter, day to night is 40 degrees Celsius. Seeing an average shift of one degree is impossible to pick up. So I think that's part of the problem. It's slow and it's a big spatial scales operating over an entire planet, whereas medicine is fast and it operates in your body. And there's a bit of a, a theme coming through, I suppose, with neuroscience, with that trust in the, the shorter term things, like we want to cure, or we can find out certain things about the brain. But if we're talking about really fundamental research and what that might help us with in, say, 10 or 20 years, it's a bit hard for someone to visualise how that might help them. Yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, if you think about what was happening with dementia now, you know, it's a very general interest in the community. And that's because there's a lot of people getting older and you can see it around you, right? Now, when you start talking about long-term changes in mental health, things that start out when you might be 12 or 13 or even younger and have an impact maybe for 10 years down the road, so this is more distressing disorders that come online. You think, look, what we're trying to understand is some of the biology that might lead to that. There's no short-term outcomes here. It's very much like what you were saying, you know, something that you can't point to six months, 12 months down the road, as happens with an antibiotic or the vaccine. Those are the ones that are difficult to talk about and give specific answers for. And this is where discovery research is really important, where trying to explain how this might lead to an understanding of a disorder is actually pretty difficult. And until you can you know, point to very specific things and say, look, this is how it was yesterday and this is how it's today, that short time frame makes a very big difference. And you know, partly that's the way our brain operates pretty much in the, in the shorter time frame. And this is why we really have to communicate to people uh, broadly and, and tell them about the long-term consequences. And also getting across the importance of that big picture with conservation science or with neuroscience going, well, we need to understand the really basics of how the brain works or how systems work, because if we don't know that, then it's really hard to piece together where it goes wrong. Very much so. I mean, if you think about climate science, you know, a lot of the fundamentals, the physics and the bits we know about climate, you know, we know it a lot better than we know things about the brain. I mean, we know lots about the brain, but there, it's like in the early days of what we knew about the climate. 
And we will eventually understand it. We'll make the kinds of predictions that the climate people are making now about what will happen to the brain if something goes wrong. And the kinds of things that Hugh was talking about earlier, you know, why does this small effect today, like the maths problems when you were a kid, why does that end up having a big impact on people, you know, 10 years down the road? Eventually, we will be able to model that. At least that's people in the QBI certainly believe that. And it'll come from understanding the basic biology the same way as we understand what's happening to climate now in many, many small respects. And we will have complex models for those things as well. So that's way why you need the basic discovery science now. Mm. And there's a lot of modelling in brain science too, right? Because you can have some scans, but there's a lot of the molecular, really tiny aspects of the brain that you can't really open up someone's head and, and have a look into. So there's a lot of modelling that's used, isn't Very there? much so. It, it's all models in the end. You know, you have bits and pieces of understanding, but really to try and predict what happens at the brain level or at the behavioural level, you need models. And it's the, pretty much the same kinds of models across the board as the ones he was talking about. You know, it's the same. It's maths in the end, yeah. So it sounds like it's really important to have those collaborations across disciplines in science. Oh, very much so. Look, a neuroscience is, was not going to go anywhere just being a bunch of biologists making recordings or cutting bits of brain up and looking at it. And that's the direction of the Brain Institute and Brain Institutes everywhere, you know, bringing in statisticians and mathematicians to have equal partnerships here. It's like we're not telling them what to do, but they look at our data and try to come up with models. And that's been a lot of your career, hasn't it, Hugh? You have a foot in biology and in mathematics. Yeah, I started off as a mathematician and was in a maths department, but my passion was always for nature. And then I found that there's so many relatively straightforward problems in conservation where mathematical, economic, engineering tools can be transported. And they made me look really smart. So from being a bad mathematician, I was a reasonable ecologist. You know, getting back to your point about COVID, I think, there, even though there is a base of, of differential equations, some of the explanations can be, for example, quite simple. For example, big R, or they even talk about it now on TV, which is roughly how many people you infect while you are infective. And it's a fundamental number that really dominates policy and management of a disease. And if big R is bigger than one, the disease grows geometrically. If the big R is less than one, it disappears. And so you've just got to make sure that if you are infected, you infect less than one person. It's that simple. The maths of epidemiology can all boil down to this big R. And of course, you can infect less people by changing your behaviour, wearing a mask. They could be wearing a mask, having quarantine, or making sure that the people you meet are double vaccinated. So there are all these strategies that make sense in terms of a, of a relatively simple mathematical model. And it, it's worked a treat, really. Of course, the Delta variant, we also then saw that the big R changed fundamentally because the virus changed and we learned a bit about viral evolution. So things spread faster, we have to change our policies and it's worked well. And the beauty of that is we've also learned a lot about exponential growth. The world is not a linear place. So the one thing people get puzzled by is when it does start to outbreak, how come it outbreaks so much and there's this time lag? So just a couple of people and how come there's 200 now there's 1,000? and We're not, we're losing, but in fact, if you didn't do anything, it'd be a million really, really quickly because if you double things, they go crazy. They go out of control like 
Brisbane house prices. <laughs> <laughs> so th- we've learned a lot also that the world is not a linear world and climate change is also showing the world is not a linear world. There's thresholds in the world. It's a non-linear world and uh, COVID is a non-linear thing. And I think that's been very educative for the broader public. This doesn't something that just grows by 10 each day. It grows exponentially. If you don't stomp it early, as say the premiers have always said, get on top of it now because with exponential growth, if you have to squash it fast, you can't squash it at all. It's been a really interesting year or so as well for the amount of science communication and what we've learnt just on TV and the words that we've learnt by every you know media update. We have science terms like the big R and um, looking at curves and growth. We have so much more science in our day-to-day talking. It's quite amazing really, isn't it? Yeah, and I hope that will flow over to supportive science and the recognition that all this work, some of it very fundamental work about understanding how systems work, you know, it's not going to help you tomorrow. It's not going to save your life tomorrow, but it fundamentally reforms the way we live and brings prosperity. I mean, Australia has to also make some big decisions about its economy. Um, We have an economy based largely on mining, agriculture and tourism, and so we're sitting on a three-legged stool. And one of those stalls has been really wobbly for the last couple of years. Hopefully tourism will be back on track. But it's not pleasant sitting on a two-legged stall. We have enormous opportunity. There's so many smart people in this country. We punch so far above our weight in things like neuroscience, in things like ecology and agricultural science, mining engineering. We're a powerhouse. But we need to turn that into manufacturing, business, consulting at a global scale to realise the benefits of the smarts we have because we can't just keep living on this three-legged stool when so many of those legs won't necessarily persist forever. And I think some of what COVID has taught us as well is that maybe we need to throw a bit more money at, at the basic science to begin with, because if we're to put more money and resources into, say, the vaccines that were being built here at UQ even, um, which were on the way, then maybe we would have been able to hit the ground running as it actually happened rather than playing catch up. Definitely. And there's even with that vaccine assay re-engineer it, there's opportunities because this is a disease, COVID, not unlike um, the common cold and the flu. It's a disease that mutates quickly. So we're going to be in a running battle with it for uh, the next 10, 20, 50 years, if not forever. So different kinds of vaccines are going to find their role in different kinds of ways. And the UQ vaccine was very different. And so that fundamental technology is going to be useful far into the future. So yeah, you, you, in all of these issues, whether it's the climate, whether it's health, you can't just rely on one silver bullet. You, you need an arsenal to battle issues like climate change. You need an arsenal of tools to battle issues like mental health from everywhere to getting people to go out and walk in the forest to drugs. And coming back to the decision-making science, you've had a lot of practice at that, obviously, and um, throughout your research career. Can you explain a bit more about that and then how you apply it to when you're talking about policymakers and people in government? Because, you know, how do you persuade them that these big picture um, things are really important, even though it doesn't have an immediate outcome? Yeah. And I think they generally get those big picture things. So one of uh, our most uh, well-known and widely used tools is a spatial planning tool that builds protected area systems. And that piece of software is now used by almost every country in the world to build all their marine and terrestrial protected area systems. The first big successful application was the Great Barrier Reef. So effectively, that tool is changing 10 to 20% of the surface of the planet. 
Those land use problems are another interesting, challenging issue that the general public often doesn't particularly want to engage in because sensible land use, should I make this this hectare, should I make it a suburb? Should I make it a wheat field? Should I make it a national park? Should I make it a dam? Should I make it a solar array, PP solar array? I think that's one of the most important decisions society ever makes because the surface of the planet is finite and you only have can do one thing in one place. It doesn't work as a national park and a, and a solar panel array or, or, a, or a reservoir or a wheat field. They don't all sit on top of each other. You've got one or another. That fundamental decision about land use planning, which our software tries to solve by giving people a framework for maximising the benefits to humanity. We need nature. We need food. We need to create electricity and power. That fundamental question, I think more people should be engaged with. So the politicians know it's a problem because they have people yelling at them about house prices, then they have people yelling at them about why the koalas are all going extinct because we're chopping down too many trees. And then the agricultural scientists say, you really, you put a suburb on this incredibly valuable, only 4.7, 4.5% of Queensland is high value agricultural land, the best soils in the whole state, 4.7%. And sometimes we put some suburbs on it. Who did that? You know, so we're messing up a lot on planning, and I think we have opportunities. And I would like to see the people of Queensland just generally more engaged, the people of Australia more engaged in those decisions, and actually saying, why did you rezone these areas in that particular way? Why is that dam going there? Why is this kind of agriculture happening here? Why is this a national park? And Pankaj, how can neuroscience help with decision making, with talking to people? Is it is the brain drawn to more emotional connections, or is it logic? Well, I guess in in some ways it's it's more than a collaboration. It's you know it's it's a mixture of neuroscience and psychology, and psychology of course deals with people's behaviours, and that's ultimately driven by the brain. And the more we understand about neuroscience and interact with the psychology side of things, the more we get to understand about. In, in some ways, it's a, it's a way of providing rewards for, for s- small rewards. It's not to say you get an award for something. A reward is something where you look, have an aha moment, if you like, you know, to be able to pitch things in the right direction, to be able to present things in particular ways and understand what's the ideal way of doing this. And, you know, it's the kind of things we're doing in schools now about, you know, what's the best way to teach a maths lesson, for instance, and you know, and that comes from the integration of neuroscience and psychology. And the same way when you're talking to the greater general public or you're talking to decision makers, thinking about how you pitch this thing. In some ways, you know, it's the kind of thing you teach you at business school, you know, about that that kind of decisions you make, how best to present something. But really neuroscience and psychology, which are very well integrated, has a great deal to say about exactly how you present these things and the order of things and exactly what the pitch of your voice ought to be and things like that. And that's really coming from the neuroscience and psychology put together. Yeah, interesting. So what are some of those points? Is it making things relevant to someone and obviously so they can understand the science as well? I think those are probably the basics. But Well, it what used are the other to tips? be a lot of it came from uh, um, hearsay, if you like, you know, just talking to people and saying this is what works for me and this is what doesn't work for me. Well, a lot of it can also come from actually doing experiments on people 
you know, where you start presenting things and testing their outcomes. And that's basic discovery science. And out of that, you make predictions about, look, if you present something like this or you talk to, in this particular way, this is the outcomes you will get in terms of their understanding. And then you go out and test it. So it's a very medical process, if you like, which we're heading down. And that's what neuroscience can bring to the picture. And it's more and more starting to happen if you, if you look now, you know, compared to what things were like 15 years ago, you do see things like the neuroscience of decision making and, you know, the neuroscience of how you work in a board, for instance, which, you know, neuroscience of economics. And these titles keep, keep coming up more and more, and that's coming from the way we, we understand more and more about how individuals behave. Actually, it's interesting. It's a lot to do with the way climate science operates, in which, you know, you think about the way climate operates. Small little things come together to form the very big, very big changes. Well, the way people behave and the way groups behave, it's very, very similar. Small bits and pieces, which on their own don't do very much, when you put them together, you start getting big effects. And in some ways, that's, that's a very interesting way of thinking about the two of them. So it's fair to say that funding of science has been decreasing over quite a lot of years. It's been particularly challenging for researchers to secure government-funded grants. QBI has been fortunate to have many valued supporters who donate to research here, and philanthropy has been really critical to some of our scientists to actually continue their research projects. Hugh, what do you think is the path forward, particularly for that kind of discovery research? Philanthropy is one aspect. There's industry partnerships. Um, there might be other government avenues. How do we better fund science? Yeah, well, all of the above. I mean, certainly my experience working in the United States for the Nature Conservancy for four years showed me that philanthropy is a much bigger part of their funding puzzle, whether it's basic research or conservation outcomes. Uh, a lot of the funding is coming through philanthropy. So we need to win the hearts, souls and minds of, of the general public. Um, I think, I fear, unfortunately, that the current trend for Western democracies is to continue to reduce the tax base. Every time they reduce the tax base, apparently we love that and we all cheer. Uh, we get a bit more money, but the bottom thing is that all the things that we care about, transport, health, environment, basic research, science, and which will give us the prosperity we need, are all being eroded every time we cut those taxes. So one of the only letters I've ever written to The Australian about 12 years ago had three sentences. I would like to pay more tax was the first sentence. The second sentence was, I value the goods and services my tax provide, education, health, um, the environment and so forth. And fourthly, the third thing I said, which nobody believed and everybody thought I was being cynical and silly, was I trust the Australian government to spend our tax dollars wisely. And I do trust the Australian governments. We can complain at local, state and federal levels, but we don't have corruption in this country at the scale of almost any other country in the world. They are genuinely trying to deliver things for the Australian people and the Australian people question them if they don't. So, to be honest, tax is civilisation. Uh, I would like, I really would like to pay a lot more tax and, and until we can convince the general public that it's going to be better for them and their children and that that tax will actually drive more prosperity, we're going to struggle. And it's also about having that aim of trying to be 
um, a nation that excels in science. You're talking about having some of the smartest brains on the planet here. Is it about supporting those people to build industries and new avenues to make a fourth leg of that? Yeah, yeah. talent attracts talent. And and let's go, say, to climate science where, you know, we feel as though do we have great climate scientists. Reuters just published a list of the top 1,000 climate scientists in the world. 32 of the top 300 are Australians. Mm. When did we last have 11% of the best tennis players in the world or 11% of the best anything in the world? So we truly excel in many areas of science, including things like climate scientists. Those great climate scientists continually attracting smart minds and all those smart minds are developing uh, the innovation that slows through to industry, whether it's the financial sector, the mining sector, the health sector, that actually drives the country, will be driving the country's economy more and more as we wean ourselves off a sort of a, a dig it up type economy. And lastly, what advice do you each have for aspiring young scientists? Well, let me start. I think, you know, there's a great future in science and anybody who's interested in it, I would encourage them to get into science. It's the way forward and particularly from the perspective of the brain, it's a great new future and really there's lots and lots to be learned and there'll be a whole new generation of devices and ways to operate that are coming. And, you know, think about all the disorders in the brain which we know very little about how to treat and it's only the young people who are currently starting their careers who we really want them to encourage to do science. And, you know, I think it will be the further we look forward, a science-driven society that we live in, and we do need people uh, to join us in that endeavour. I suppose two things. One is do what you think you like. Pursue your passion, because if you're passionate and excited about anything, it doesn't really matter whether it's the behaviour of fish on the coral reef or why the stars and the galaxies do what they do. If you like it, do it. Because if you do it, you'll be good at it. And then you'll end up doing other interesting things. That's what we've already heard. And the second thing is sort of the advice from my mother, do more maths because it's the maths, the computing the and the statistics. Plug. That's right. And she was a PhD in physics when there were virtually no women who were PhDs in physics. I was not at all enamoured with maths. I thought it was a silly, boring subject, but I persisted. And it was, wasn't until second year university that I suddenly unlocked the magic of this to deliver outcomes for other areas. So I think those math skills are really fundamental and, and will be useful regardless. It will be useful to you if you're a lawyer or a GP or an engineer. It doesn't matter. Those math skills are gold. And if you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.